and you had like a druid in the party who was like, hey, they were here first. Maybe we should just move the mine. But like any other party is like, these are giant bugs. Giant bugs need to die. How do you move a mine? <laughs> I'm saying that you just don't make it. You say, oh, that sucks. Sorry. Shouldn't have, should have checked for Kruthic hives first. Okay, I'll give you that. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> they, the, the mine's there for a reason. Right, and The right. reason is there's an immovable source of ore. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just move the iron ore somewhere else? Oh, uh, that's what we were right. doing with the picks. <laughs> Welcome to Monsters and Multiclass, your Dungeons and Dragons fix. I'm Kevin Odie. I'm Jared Bornable. And I'm Will Melvin. And we'll be hanging out with you for a while to talk about anything and everything D&D related. On this episode, we're taking a look at the Paladin Warlock Multiclass, Kruthix from Mordekainen's Tomb of Foes, and then diving into support characters in a segment of Ask Monsters and Multiclass. So pull up a chair and stick around for a while. You totally said tomb. Did I? Oh, man. You totally said tomb, Kevin. It's been so, so long since I've made that mistake. Yeah. I think we should leave it. That's okay. But for, for, I just wanted like, to call you mis- out. Yeah, for like nostalgia's sake. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. Yeah. What did we even All use right. to call it? When Mordekainen's. We Mordekainen's. Yeah, Mordekainen's yeah. Tome. Like Mordekainen's the, Tomb of Foes. The Amish name, Mordekai. <laughs> <laughs> At least we didn't pronounce foes wrong. Then we would have had like every word. In it, just incorrect. I don't know how you pronounce foes wrongs. Mordekainen's. I can't even say it wrong anymore. Mordekainen's tomb of foos. <laughs> it's just a bunch of foosball. That dude loves his foosball. All right. Anyways. So our multiclass today is the Paladin Warlock. Paladins are your warriors with an oath, often to a god, but not necessarily. They are melee martial characters and half-casters, though most of their spell slots are used on smites, which they use to just deal additional radiant damage. Warlocks are the casters with a dark past. Uh, They get their powers usually through a pact with a greater entity. Uh, They are Will's favorite class for a pretty good reason as well. They get few actual spell slots, but all their spells are quite potent and at their highest casting level, and they recharge those slots on a short rest. The multiclassing requirements to go into this are Strength and Charisma, both 13, as all multiclassing requirements are 13 for these. And it's kind of interesting because it, it works out well. Paladins are usually Strength and Charisma, which is kind of difficult. Warlocks, just Charisma. Some nice overlap there. Uh, so first thoughts, let's go ahead and start with Kevin here. Yeah, this is great. We know it's great. You all know it's great. This is what Multiclassin is really made for. It's a charisma caster with a paladin, which is obviously always really a good combination. There's a lot of good synergy here. They make each other better. The role play is interesting and dynamic. I think it would be a challenge to do this poorly. Yeah, there's a couple. There's like very few traps from what I found. And all of them would just be like just something dumb that you'd have to do if you just didn't understand how the game worked as a whole. Like if you took five levels in Paladin and got your extra attack and also took Pact of the Blade and the Eldritch Invocation that got you a second attack. (laughs) It's like, yeah, that would be stupid. It still wouldn't (laughs) be a bad character. It would just be less optimized. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. 
All right, Will, how about you? Do you have a dissenting opinion on this one? No, uh, it's it's pretty hard to counter signal this in any way. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, your only real mess up would be if you somehow just tried to play some backline blaster and then wire you the palette. It's a really solid combination mechanically. And it's also something that really jives well together uh, with any role play aspects you may go with. The Paladin isn't quite as formally tied to charisma as, say, uh, like a bard or a cleric, but it's always been associated in that way. So I think they're both, hey, they have kind of a bombastic approach to their uh, role playing aspects, your deal with the devil, and then oath to whatever. They just combine pretty perfectly. Yeah, I think this was one that when I first started looking into multi-classing, uh, this was always described as like the absolute pinnacle of multi-classing and was, in my eyes, I, I, I guess I tried to justify it being so powerful by saying that the role-playing aspects were really bad. I'd be like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Why would a paladin, you know, go into a, a pact with a warlock? And, you know, it's, it's stupid. And it had to be stupid because otherwise I the mechanics were just too perfect. So, like, I, I needed to... That was my coping with it. My, my coping strategy <laughs> was saying that, well, only a power gamer would do this and anyone else would just screw it up. But that's just totally wrong. I think the, the role-playing aspect is is probably one of the most unique ones and interesting ones uh, and allows you to build a character that is a little more flawed. One of my biggest complaints about Paladin is that they often come across as like the total do-gooder. Everything is just perfect and they are very tied to their ways and, and just do not waver in any fashion. Uh, but throwing in that Warlock... Part of it makes them seem a little more flawed and a lot more interesting. And I feel like you can add just so much more to it. Now, that's not to say every Paladin Oath is like that. I think Oath of Vengeance, there's tons of room for a lot of intricacies to the to the character. But a lot of them do fall into this idea of just like, I'm perfect and I follow the ideals of good and law and nothing's ever wrong. But Warlock's a good way to just spice it up. <laughs> Yeah, with with the role playing. So I think we need to clear up a common misconception of paladins. Every time we have a paladin multi class, we do this like it's a civic duty or something. But so we're gonna do it again because it's really important with us. Paladins do not have to be followers of a god. They do not have to get their powers from a god. They do not have to devote themselves to a god. That's a cleric. Obviously, you can you can play a paladin that's devoted to a god, but their main source of the power is from their oath. They have such a strong oath in something they believe in. They pull power from the universe itself. And so because of that, that does not conflict in any way with a warlock. If it was 100%, oh, they're a god's warrior. They're a god's fist, so to speak. And then, yeah, it's kind of messy saying, all right, they're also going to then go get powers from a demon lord. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of stretching it. But when it's just... They have such a strong oath of vengeance against a group of people who have raided their village that they go and then sell their soul to the devil or make a pact with a demon to further their power, to further get vengeance. It fits perfectly. There's, I don't think there's any weird justification that needs to be done. It just really enhances their story. Right. Right. It, it just it solidifies the ends they're willing to go to. 
I think it actually complements uh, this particular thing complements it because I think the confusion comes from the uh, devotion to this oath is in itself basically otherworldly. That's why it differentiates from a peasant who's particularly passionate about vengeance. You are bringing your personal, it's like an impetus that manifests itself through smites. That is most common associated with moralities, orders, and beliefs of gods. So it makes sense that they pair up very, very well. This also pairs up really, really well with any kind of warlock patron you might go with. Right. Right. And we even said uh, much earlier in in a different episode that the oath doesn't have to be specifically to these ideas of morality. They really are just the idea of it being extremely strong feelings about something to an extent that we can't really quantify in in our world but i still love the idea of a paladin who loves beanie babies and i think that that is probably going to be your best warlock combination that would be a conquest correct yes yeah where they want to (laughs) acquire all of the beanie babies in the world and they, of course, have to sell their soul because how do you get enough money to buy all the Beanie Babies? <laughs> yeah, that was another really early episode joke. It's the nostalgia episode. <laughs> Can we somehow talk about the ancestral guardian? No. <laughs> barbarians <into> this. <laughs> we talked about that like last episode, so that's too soon. Too soon. Nope. I learned how to say it now. <laughs> so I'll keep mispronouncing words. You keep bringing up Beanie Babies. Will Warlock episode! and so even to bring it back over to the mechanics a little bit here uh you know we just jump around there's no structure to this getting eldritch blast as a paladin i don't want to say it's underrated but i feel like that isn't even brought up at how awesome it is but when i played a straight paladin one of the worst parts of it was every time ranged battle came up i was dead in the water there is nothing you can do as a paladin unless you like pull out some javelins that do barely anything. They might have proficiency with longbows and stuff, but again, you're not going to have dexterity. It's just not going to be great. Uh, being able to just switch over to the best cantrip in the game is worth a one level dip into Warlock by itself. Yeah, definitely. Just the versatility, the option for ranged and then of course it being a cantrip it scales with you right so one level dip and then yeah level five it's 2d10 at level 11 it's 3d10 and so on and then the the big thing that this is definitely not underrated this is the big big thing everybody talks about mechanically is that you could smite with your warlock spell slots that you get back on a short rest right which is huge because paladin's they love to smite. It's, it's kind of the main <laughs> use of spells. I know I've been playing a paladin multi-class with spell slots, and that's basically all I used them for unless there was some sort of unique out-of-combat situation. It was hard to justify really any other spell in combat other than smite. And those would scale, right? Yes. So, you know, we're talking 5th level smites at ninth level. You know, Of Warlock, yeah. Yeah, and that's your 2 yeah, spell yeah. slots. Yeah, so the Warlock spells, they get, at level 1 is 1 per short rest, and then at level 2, it's 2 per short rest. And it's always a certain set level. And so, yeah, like ninth you get 5th level spells. And so every time you cast a spell as a Warlock, it's 5th level. So if you go to Warlock 9, you get 2 5th level smites per short rest, which is a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah, and it, it makes me kind of wonder even 
how much paladin you really need to go into because you only need two levels to get your smites. Well, I guess, you know, it depends on how you want to play it, but then you're going to get some first level smites for when you just need to do a bit of extra damage, but then you do get those those really heavy hitters every short rest, uh, which is just incredibly useful. And when the crit comes up, you're going to feel like a god. Right. <laughs> that being said, if all you're going for is smites, you're probably better off taking the invocation that gives you smites. It does essentially the same thing. True. I think you have to do... Is it the, the blade pact for that one? Or do you have to be actually just pulling it up. There's like 8 million invocations, so... Right. It's pact of the blade. Okay. Which is actually less selective, you know? Because the pact right. that you choose, it seems like a big deal, but it's more flavor unless it is pact of the blade. Right. That said, uh, one thing to keep in mind is there's no real reason that you have to do pact of the blade i don't think that this is going to suffer if you do at the very least you could do the pact of the chain pact of the tome i don't know if that really works too well with the paladin aspect i I would say there's one good build for that and so pact of the tome is where you could pick i think it's three cantrips from it's two or three cantrips from any spell list and they don't have to be from the same one so you could take shillelagh so let's say you don't want to go hexblade you could then, so you're Paladin Warlock, you go back to the Tome, you pick Shillelagh, and so then you could still just focus on Charisma. You could keep Strength, you know, at the 13 minimum, or put at 15 for Heavy Armor, or whatever. That's a good point. I feel like you're going to lose out on a lot of other aspects. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, it's... But I mean, it, if, if that one, if you're going further into Paladin, you know, you're, you're going up to 5th level Paladin at least... Uh, then I could definitely see that working out because, once again, you get your strength to 13 and then just kind of ignore it from there, keep going down the charisma route, and you have a, a great way to just have everything focus on charisma without feeling like you have to go into Hexblade. That said, Hexblade is going to be the most mechanically viable Warlock subclass to go into. There is no question <laughs> about it. It is amazing. Combining it with Paladin makes it more amazing and that's it. <laughs> it's just good. So for those unaware, Hexblade is the one where uh, right away at level one, you get the ability to, when you attack, use your charisma for your attack roll and damage and stuff. You don't have to, you, you could replace it strength and dexterity with charisma. So right away, that's another really good way to just worry, only worry about charisma, get the minimum strength. And that's it. Uh, you can also crit uh, 19s. Or, oh, then you get the curse where you get damage to bonuses and crits the 19s or 20s. Paladins being able to crit more is really fantastic because there is nothing more satisfying than rolling a crit and throwing a high level smite on that. Then you gain hit points if the target dies. Also then, though the rest of level one though is a little bit redundant because then you get proficiency with like medium armor, shields, and martial weapons. Mm-hmm. What's a paladin will give you anyways. Right. And you can like make a weapon your your hex blade weapon. That one, right. I guess, have some I guess thoughts around the fact that it has to be one handed. I don't know if that's like a huge killer. Does hex blade allow you to cast spells using your weapon when you it, when you take a specific invocation? Correct. Okay. Okay. So if you get that invocation, that's good. But otherwise it's going to be difficult to do like a one-handed weapon and a shield because if you want to cast spells that aren't 
smites, which why would you? <laughs> well, I mean, warlocks get some really good stuff too. You right, might right, cast right. hacks, definitely. Um, so if you want to cast spells that might be a little tough either you're doing some weapon juggling or you have to take that invocation uh or you have to get the the feet war magic warcaster 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 um i think allows you to use your weapon that's always tough maybe less so with this because you're not really focusing on anything besides charisma that you definitely have room for feats in in that case the other thing to keep in mind is if you do pursue pack the blade that restriction to one-handed goes away right right so that kind of that actually does kind of interrupt it it makes this dip this first level dip seems really good until you see what you're missing by avoiding the third level dip so the biggest problem with this is it's almost like you're now getting addicted to dipping into warlock which i think which is is solid solid thing to go into that's also great flavor (laughs) <laughs> like seriously yeah it's perfect from from a role-playing perspective i mean that's my favorite part about warlock is it's supposed to feel like the easier path forward is like oh i just have to you know keep doing uh little things for for my patron every once in a while and he'll give me more levels that's so much better than you know training for hours and hours a day and holding a extremely strong oath that i have to stick to like a workout regiment so I don't know. I think that's I don't great. know. I feel personally attacked by the because I'm always <laughs> saying like how it would be like three seconds if there was any possibility of me being a warlock. I, it would just instantly I would be a warlock. And I hate trying and doing stuff. I didn't even know what monster we were doing this week. So what you're saying is I'm completely right. And yeah, it is no, seen that's, as the easier that's why way. I okay. feel personally attacked. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that's it's great mechanically, again, at, at least that three-level dip, uh, and, I mean, even, it's just as much as you want, as much as you want in either class here, and you're going to have a good time. It's perfect. End of episode. Just go do it. You already are. You didn't need us to tell you. <laughs> Realistically, your entire party probably should be Paladin Warlocks. <laughs> If you throw in somebody who's playing a celestial warlock, you'd have a pretty balanced party then. Yeah, it's actually, it's almost upsetting how effective that probably would be. (laughs) Like, that would be a really, really solid way just to piss piss your DM off beyond belief. It's like two hardcore nuke hex warriors healing, you know, somebody who just figures out how to derive some tank build out of this. And they're just like, well... All right, you're level nine and we're out of stuff in the book to throw at you. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you do the the Pact of the Chain, it has one of my favorite invocations tied to it. And that's when uh, you get healing, you just get the max amount of healing. Yeah, if you're by your familiar. Yeah, if you're, and I'm going to look that up. Man, there's so many invocations. I want to stop saying that, but I can't. There's too many. (laughs) And yet not enough. Yeah, Gift of the Ever-Living Ones. When you regain hit points while your familiar is within 100 feet of you, treat any dice roll to determine the hit points you regain as having rolled their maximum value for you. So (laughs) when you combine that with the Celestials, which is you have a pool of D6s you can spend to fuel this healing, the number of dice in the pool equals 1 plus your Warlock level. As a bonus action, you can heal one creature you can see within 60 feet of you, spending dice from the pool... And that pool equals your charisma modifier. You roll the dice 
add them together, but instead of rolling them at all, you just do the max. So there you go. Here's some D6s back for you. That actually is a really yeah. good tank build. It's some kind of weird like chain <laughs> combo. And this, yeah. people are always like, oh, you can't tank in D&D. There's totally things in D&D you can tank with, and Paladin's one of the classes that gets them. Fuck, Warlock actually has stuff that helps. Yeah, like uh, the Hexblade gets shield, which obviously helps. And then if you're going Hexblade and all you need to do is focus on charisma, as Jared said, there's room for more feats. So then you could take stuff like Sentinel, which makes you very sticky and tanky. No reason you couldn't do Polearm Master, too, if you do Pact of the Blade. Or, yeah, if you do Pact of the Blade. But that gets rid of this uh, weird combo with Pact of the Chain, but still, different way to do it. Right. And this is a good party comp. <laughs> I would I would totally plan that. Every and every single person starts with, you know, paladin, so you've got an entire crew of dudes in plate armor. Just to yeah. just to make it a little bit more annoying for everybody. That wasn't mentioned either, <laughs> but it's definitely important. If you start with paladin, you get heavy armor. Can't argue that. Right. Really good. Now that said, if you want to use plate, you need fifteen strength. Which still shouldn't be hard to get to. No. And honestly, even if you don't do that, then you just lose 10 feet of movement. Right. That's a, that's the only penalty. I know for the longest time we thought it was like you just couldn't or was, you couldn't move or it was a really bad penalty. Your speed just reduces by 10 feet. Right. It's not great, but like it's it's okay. Yeah. You can just play a dwarf. <laughs> or then anyways. if you're, yeah, say if you're a dwarf, then you should ignore it. Do these two have the exact same saving throws, Wisdom and Charisma? Yes. Yes, they do. Yep. So, so no, okay. no, no choices on there either way. Both of them are pretty good, honestly. Proficiency and wisdom saving throws, I would yeah. probably say, are the most important in all of D anD. d Yeah, those are kind of the ones that just take you out of the fight and mess you up. Right. Dexterity saving throws are more common, but it's just damage. It's just yeah. damage, which sucks, but you know you're gonna take damage, and that's whatever. Charisma, they're not as common. I'd say when you have to make a charisma saving throw, it's always yeah saying they're not (laughs) as common is a huge understatement they're like the rarest outside they're like competing with intelligence but they're almost not there until they are and then you're fucked right it's always the high level stuff yeah one thing that i wanted to point out going back to that celestial warlock which just from a role-playing perspective i would like to say if you do celestial warlock and paladin you are a coward uh it's an extremely boring one in a horribly flavorful matchup you just take any semblance of fun and just ruin it by going celestial warlock uh (laughs) it's a strong statement well because it's just like oh your paladin's uh got a really strong oath and loves uh saving people uh well hey i'm an angel and i like what you're doing and i'd like you to keep doing it and not change a single thing yeah that's the (laughs) lamest shit ever man (laughs) Some people just want to play the straightforward stuff. It, it can Not be. Not everyone needs the troubled character who has inner conflicts. They just want to be the hero, the good guy. That's fine. That's if fine. fine you mean remember shit. our talk about alienating our listeners by being mean to them, guys? Keep what was the conclusion? Because I, <laughs> I think we might have reached opposite ones. <laughs> if we have listeners who've listened to us for this amount of time you would know that you come here to get bullied this isn't a matter of of treating you nicely i'm not saying there's a right way to play DD, but we all know there is and we're lying if we say otherwise all right so what i was actually trying to get to is that at sixth level 
Uh, they get the ability to add their charisma modifier to a spell that deals radiant or fire damage. Uh, I just want to point out that a normal smite would not work for this because you're not officially casting a spell when you smite. But a searing smite should work. Where if you use your searing smite, it's a bonus action to cast a spell. Next attack that hits does additional fire damage. And I believe you'd be able to then add your charisma modifier to that. Which could be a, a neat combo there. Yeah. But it would mean going Celestial Warlock. Yeah, don't you know, do it could be cool. <laughs> nice nice uh, turn here is if you did like Oath of Vengeance and then Celestial Warlock. So it was like yeah. how you get out of your Oath of Vengeance is through a a nice entity that I can deal with. <laughs> <laughs> just the conflict. The I just I just conflict. like, yeah, yeah, I like the conflict. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's fair. Oh, look at the juxtaposition. Yeah, I've it's played like, it's not a bad narrative structure. <laughs> I've played the straightforward characters. That was what uh, my paladin was. And it was kind of fun. But that was for a campaign that was very focused on like, we need to kill demons. And that was it. So I don't right. think there was much room there for a lot of internal conflict and, you know, turning away from... It's not like I can be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't kill these demons. Like, no, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, the Wizards of the Coast doesn't exactly leave you a lot of macro wiggle room, moral, morality-wise, in their campaigns. <laughs> I'm not usually not. Yeah, in terms of how much to go in each class, it, it's really hard to go wrong here. The, the one thing I would say, if you mainly want to be Warlock and boost up a Warlock with you know, Paladin stuff, definitely, obviously, make sure you are a melee focused warlock otherwise it's worthless if you're going for the spell slinger uh, like archfey or something warlock and then you take a couple paladin levels you're not getting much out of it you're probably going to want to be mainly hexblade um or at the very least take pact of the blade and like go the fiend or something and then at that two levels into paladin could be really useful yeah, you get your land hands, so you get 10 points of that you get a fighting style you get um medium armor proficiencies weapon proficiencies and then you get access to divine smite as well as a couple you know small handful of paladin spells and then that of course that divine smite will scale with your warlock level so that'll continue going up other way around i think you probably benefit less than a one level dip unless you specifically go hexblade just for the sake of having to only worry about charisma uh, so if you're mainly going Paladin, go one level in the Hexblade. That'd be fine. That's kind of a classic. If you want to go more, then you're almost good from like a 10-10 split. Maybe not exactly 10-10 based on where levels break off. But there is definitely a benefit of going more in Warlock because then your spell slots that you get back on a short rest go up, which fuel your smites better. Yeah, definitely. I could I could easily see an 11 paladin nine warlock so you get those fifth level spells for warlock and you get your improved right. divine smites at 11th level for for paladin d8 every melee attack right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then at that yep. point you'll at least have up to third level spells with paladin so you've got plenty of spell slots to work with uh to be competing at that 20th level um and your your fifth level which is i think is as high as warlocks are really going to get from a spell slot perspective. They get their weird stuff where they start to cast 
higher level spells, but they don't get like a slot for it, I believe. Yeah, Mystic Arcanum, which is their 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth level spells, are not transferable. It's just right. a special... They get one of one spell each time they get it, and they can cast it once per day. Right, so they can't use it to smite. Correct. Yeah, it specifically says without expending a spell slot. Right. Which is not, not really a big deal. Because that, that maxes out, doesn't it? So it doesn't matter. What do you mean? What maxes out? Yeah, Divine Smite to a maximum of 5d8. So you can't oh, do a 9th right. level smite. Correct, correct. Yeah, so I mean, and to say it doesn't matter, it's more in the sense that missing out on ninth level spells is always a bad thing. Like, nobody should argue that, like, oh, you don't need ninth level spells. They're good. They're very, very good. Yeah. But if you're going this specific build, it, it's not, you're not going for spell casting. You're going for high damage, and you're going to get it. <laughs> we say missing out on ninth level spells is not a good thing. Like, probably 85% of our audience, us included, has never casted a ninth level spell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's actually a good point. I don't know if I have. No, we did. In um, our the Rin campaign, did we got up to 17th. Yeah, oh, you yeah, guys got yeah. to 17th. I remember you cast in Meteor Swarm. Yep. Oh, right. Was that on the village or on the city? Yeah, and you were like, oh, it has a shield. No. And the temple. Oh, yeah. the temple. Right, right, right. I wrote that beforehand. That, that always felt bad. Where you guys were like, well, why don't we just destroy the temple with a meteor swarm? And I was like, no, I, I kind of <laughs> thought of that one. Sorry. <laughs> but it felt like when like kids play make-believe, you know, and they're like, I shoot you with my guns. Like, no, I had my shield up. <laughs> the the only difference could... is the DM actually has like a uh, intellectual basis to say, no, actually, I did have my shield up. Right. <laughs> All right. Fuck you, man. We're starting our own D&D group. In retrospect, that could have been more integrated into the quest where it's like, and you have to go destroy the shield. But eh, whatever, you know, it's an early campaign. First homebrew one. Rip those meteors. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we were always inside and it made no sense for you to be like meteor swarm at ninth level. Yeah, <laughs> I had zero. I couldn't even cast it. that's why i wasn't even mad i was like "Eh, all right (laughs) got one off the warlock's 20th level feature is that you just basically get all of your spell slots back one time without a short rest like once per long rest right yeah from your packed magic feature so it's complicated Okay, that's basically it, though. At 20th level, you can draw on your inner reserve of mystical power while entreating your patron to regain expended spell slots. You can spend one minute, you regain all expended spell slots from your pack magic feature. Once you regain all spell slots with this feature, you must finish a long rest before you do so again. So it's basically you get the benefits of a short rest in a minute. Yes, which is which, one of the things that causes some issues because some some tables, like, that's not a distinction that's made. It's like, if you have a minute, then you have an hour kind of thing. Right, right. Which I personally don't like, but it it's kind of sucks the greatness out of this one. Although it is always easier to ask your DM for a minute, but it's not the yeah. best capstone. Yeah, it's, it's probably not. But I, I could definitely see this working out with like how we have the rests structured, where if like in a day you did burn through most if not all and now you know there's going to be even more the issue is is i think this falls into a category of D that most people don't play 
which is that idea of like, there's always going to be more around the corner. I feel like this, most people are like, there's one big thing we have to deal with a day and we're going to Nova it and that's it. Uh, but this is like, you know, okay, can you justify it right now? Because you might not have an hour or the night if you need a night for a short rest. Um, but there's still going to be more and there's the potential for more. So, yeah, I'll, I'll say you're, this isn't like the capstone that you're going to cry over missing. No, actually, it's... Uh, yeah, it's just it's four more spell slots. It's kind of weird. Warlocks are weird and they are like very, very steady. You just spend most of the game with two spell slots. Yeah. Which is just crazy. It seems so few. But who needs them? One other thing that I've been looking at is, um, I've I've yelled about this like many other things before, is there's a couple of things in the Warlock subclasses that allow you to get a good thing for killing a thing. Hexblade has it with the Hexblade's Curse. That's less so, but the Fiend also has it with the Dark One's Blessing. Every time you reduce a hostile creature to zero hit points, temporary hit points, Charisma modifier plus your warlock level. As far as reducing things to zero hit points, the paladin is probably bar none the best class for doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's without a doubt that has a lot of power there. If you wanted to go for a non hex blade, that is something that I don't know if that makes up for it, but it's an interesting approach. And that that actually that subclass is just so good that it's it makes up for the fact that it's not directly geared for hitting stuff with a sword. Which one? The Fiend? Yeah. Yeah, Fiend's pretty solid. Yeah, because Dark One's own luck, where you just get, once per short rest, you can add a D10 to an ability check or saving throw. And it's one of those you can do so after seeing the initial roll, but before knowing the roll's effects. So that's that's pretty good. It's, it's nice when you can do it after you know the effects, but that's still really nice. You get that, like, 13, and you're like, eh, all right, I'm going to throw a D10 on that. And then, of course, at 14th, they get the Hurl Through Hell ability, which is the, the coolest one. God, yeah. You hit them so hard, you throw them through hell, and they take 10d10 psychic damage from the horrors they've experienced. <laughs> There's not even a saving throw on that one. They just take 10d10. That's a really... I, I really like that as um, a method of vengeance against barbarians. For DMs, just like... Oh my gosh. <laughs> chuck Hurl Through Hell on something. Right. It's like, oh, you can't stop me. I've, <laughs> I've, I resist literally all damage. Like, nope, not psychic. What do you mean not psychic? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Into the fly of despair. <laughs> and then they're out for an entire turn. So that sucks too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just horrible. Sadly, the, the D10 of psychic damage they take would not take them out of rage. That would be a real insult to injury as if they went through that and came back and were no longer raging. (laughs) Oof. That'd be beautiful. Um, One combination of this that I feel like I have to bring up or at least uh, make note of from a a role-playing perspective is currently in Critical Role, there is a a Paladin Hexblade. And that was actually a, a really neat way of, of putting that all together uh, where it was, I don't know, I think it was like eight or so levels into Warlock and there was this whole moment of rejecting the patron and I guess there was a build up to it as well. But definitely one way that you can take this is that 
exact example, Ford from Critical Role of just rejecting your patron and and now moving into something else. The warlock powers do get to stay, uh, at least how I've always seen it and viewed it. The idea is is that when you make a pact with a warlock patron, uh, they're giving you power and that's kind of permanent. They can't really take it away. Uh, that's that's yours now. Uh, so if you want to have, once again, that that inner conflict, there is always the, the idea of, hey, I don't really like being a warlock and I don't know what I'm being asked to do. So I think it's time to to hang my hat up and then you can explore all the paladin oaths. Yeah, you seek redemption. Right. And hey, what do you know? That's a paladin oath. Oath of redemption? Yeah. I don't know how well that really works here, but... Yeah, I was actually going to say that it's almost the perfect, like, uh, inverse to what you were talking about with the celestial vengeance. I don't know. Right. And then this is the, oh, I was a, I was, I was a fiend warlock, and now I need redemption. At my table, your head would explode. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing better than a warlock. Try, stop trying to improve on imp- perfection. <laughs> no, and I think that uh, your your idea of your head would explode is a little too immediate, but that definitely gives the DM tons and tons of opportunities to invoke some retribution from the patron, uh, especially a fiend one. You would expect some devils to, to come after this player character. Right. Like you can't yeah, just go definitely. back on your deal. It's not how this works. Yeah, I, I like the idea where the warlock powers are permanent it's like you have it now i it's you're not siphoning it from me it just here's a gift of power which then does open up that opportunity for them to leave and, you know then it's kind of like uh double crossing the mob it's right. like all right i mean yeah you, you kind of got away from it but you need to watch your back now for the rest of your life right right then that i mean oh i don't even know how you would end it because usually again it's such powerful beings that it's not like they're just gonna get tired of it uh, and just be like, oh, I guess I'm I'm done trying to chase after you. Enjoy your powers. Uh, <laughs> they'll, right. as you said, chase you until you die. Right. I, yeah, it's... <laughs> you'd have to take it to high level. That would need to be one of those campaigns where it's not, let's all come together to do this world-ending threat. It's all, we're a party with our own goals, and they kind of intersect. And that characters is to get out of their pact with the patron right and that would mean getting to high level and if it's a fiend eventually traveling to the nine hells and killing the devil there where it will actually die or just shredding their contract just breaking into the demon records and (laughs) (laughs) shredding their contract records but yeah yeah yes yeah yeah, whatever i yeah Uh, no. Yeah, yeah, you could have the big epic cathartic battle of the patron that's been hounding you your entire life, or you could just shred a piece of paper. <laughs> I what actually do you play like D&D for? <laughs> Personally, like especially if they made a contract with a super high level devil. When you kill like the devil devils, that actually makes them more angry. So, <laughs> well, it would be funny because like you know they they shred this contract. Uh, and then at some point they'd meet with the devil or maybe even just a uh, a representative of the devil. And they're like, remember, we've got you forever. As they like try and poof the contract into their hands and just nothing happens. And they have this like frustrating moment of like, Where, where's the contract? And you just hold the shreds of it. <laughs> like, I already took care of that. <laughs> you have no hold over me anymore. Epilogue. Um, the character is stuck in literal legal hell. 
Yeah, you can't just shred contracts. <laughs> we have copies of that. This isn't how it works. We obviously have a digital system for those. I don't know what you think you accomplished. <laughs> the blood signing? Yeah, it's symbolic. No, this is an official formal legal document. <laughs> Uh, with some of the other ones, Hexblade, Great Old One, Celestial, if you're trying to get out of that, and Archfey, uh, you could do the same thing. It would just be a matter of the DM putting together a way to sever the that entity's connection to the material plane. Uh, and that would be really interesting as well and provide for tons and tons to do. Uh, maybe you just go around right. like killing every single cult that worships this this entity and just wipe them out. Now they have less of a, a presence on this realm. You said cult, but like, that's kind of a distinction, your players. That just like sounds dark. It's like, we got to kill everybody who worships this faith. Are they evil? Of course they're evil. I need to get out of this contract. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this seems like a regular church. Shh. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, not too what? much of a distinction between gods and, and patrons. One one has a cult, the other has a religion. Once you amass enough followers, what's the difference? You know, if you want to get philosophical. It's your goals. It's just your goals, you know. <laughs> it's a cult if you want to get rid of it. <laughs> right, so that's where it comes down to. It depends on what the patron is. An archfey, you can go to the fey wilds and probably kill mm-hmm. an archfey. If your patron is Asmodeus, the ruler of the nine hells who never leaves there... It's like, okay, no, you're not going to be able to go to Asmodeus and kill him in his lair. He's he's literally the god of that layer of the hells. He can just do whatever he wants. I mean, and just blink you out of existence while you're there. You know, right. It's, so then you have to find something more creative, something akin to shredding the contract. Yeah, that's actually Some a good point. Hole to get out of it. Right. The Shredding yeah. the contract was the simple way of putting it. But again, severing the connection is the important thought. And I mean, even if you just say like, oh, you know, if you collect these six MacGuffins and take them to Mount Doom, you know, you can sever your tie <laughs> or whatever. All right, fine. Great. Yeah. Or just find a loophole. That's that's one thing that's always really driven home with devils in the D world and pretty much any sort of type of mythology or whatever or fantasy. That they are very much lawful. They're lawful evil, and they will try and screw you over and use every loophole. But you could use a loophole against them. We find something. That one's tough for a couple of reasons. One, there isn't actually a contract. Generally speaking, unless the DM took the time to write up a contract with a flaw in it in order to allow for this moment to happen, it can be a little bit tough. I don't even know what else I was going to say. Just that. That's really hard. <laughs> but could be neat. Oh, oh, you know what? It also takes the player being smart enough to find that, which which could be tough. <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess I don't literally mean like, here's a legalese contract. Decipher this and see <laughs> if you could outsmart me with finding a loophole. And I'm like, there you go. You're done. I mean something more in in world based on the laws of the universe and this realm if this thing transpires all deals are null and void and so you try and make that happen something like that in the event and maybe of- even make it a really big thing where it is truly all deals right you, you know like kind of like pirates of the caribbean bullshit like the fifth one or if you like destroy the trident all curses of the ocean are ended the fifth one yeah sure because we all got to the fifth pirates of the caribbean <laughs> Jeez, man. I don't, it was a recent movie. I don't know what to tell you. It's okay. Um, uh, yeah. It wasn't very good. No, that would be interesting, yeah. especially if it was like a morally questionable thing to do. Like in the event of Tiamat rising, 
And now your party's like, ooh, do we bring Tiamat back <laughs> just to like break everybody free of their contract? <laughs> right. I mean, plenty of people would probably be pissed about that. They're like, I love his Modius and doing his Modius things. What the fuck? Why do I have to resign a contract? <laughs> I do like the idea of a DM who's devoted enough to spend like six weeks researching like contract law and case history to find like a perfect example and then hand, you know. 300 pages of legal briefs to their players like find the loophole (laughs) some would do it some would do it yeah real puzzle dms are a unique breed of evil i respect them so much though i will never be there (laughs) coming up with puzzles is like the hardest thing for me where i just feel like i am just staring at a screen for hours and hours just like what what do i do what do i do so Mad respect to you, Puzzle DMs. Mad respect. What about the Undying? That one sucks, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. Nobody likes the Undying. Yeah, it doesn't even jab well with anything. Ooh, Undead are scared of you or something. <laughs> <laughs> Is that actually it? Do Undead become afraid of you? No, they're just like, yeah, I'm not really, I don't want to, I'm not into those brains. I'm going to go choose other brains. Oh, okay. Yeah, whatever. Ignore it. It's not good, as we've discussed at length. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Battle of Warlock. It's good. Yeah, just really, it, it's hard to lay out, sitting here, lay out like specific paths. Oh, make sure you do this and this. It's like, it, it's all good. It just kind of depends. Right. Specifically what you want to focus on more. Right. You want to be more Warlock, more Paladin, a split of both. Obviously, Hexblade's the best. But there are other options, such as like taking Shillelagh and then going Fiend or something, or not even taking Shillelagh and just going, just have Strength and Charisma up and take back Pack to the Blade. and Right, right. There's no reason that you can't just have a high strength and do all of your Paladin stuff as a Paladin and still get Eldritch Blast. So right, like, and then yeah, recurring spell slots on a short rest for more Smites and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I mean, there's a very, very few ways to actually screw this up there's just super optimized and then there's still a good character but not overly optimized those are your options right yeah even the ones where it is a screwing up like there's just not a lot of overlap it's not like these are both classes where at fifth level that way you get at that level is extra attack right and so it feels like a dead level it's just anything that's an overlap is an invocation and so you just choose to not pick it right which is dope because all of the invocations are dope yeah Right. Yeah, and I would even say that this opens you up to not having to take a bunch of the invocations that feel mandatory, where you know you're not going to be casting Eldritch Blast that often. So maybe you don't take the the one that adds your uh, charisma modifier to it because I mean you agonizing, do. agonizing yeah. blast. Well, maybe you're not going to <laughs> just don't. No, you know. <laughs> Shut up, Will. I think uh, a good one though for El. To modify Eldritch Blast is Grasp of Hadar. That's the one where it'll pull things 10 feet closer. I can see that, yeah. Because as a paladin, you usually want to be in melee and things usually want to get away from you. And so just not a bad option. Also just feels fitting. Definitely. Definitely agree with that. But otherwise, I mean, again, you're you're opening yourself up to potentially more interesting invocations. Uh, Devil's Sight is always a really cool one where you can see and darkness, both magical and non-magical, gives you that combination that we've talked about before of casting darkness. Now you can see in it, your friends can't, but 
that's okay. Uh, but you have advantage on all attacks, and all attacks against you have disadvantage unless they can also see in magical darkness. You know when your friends could all see in magical darkness? Uh, when? When all of them are paladin warlocks. <laughs> that would just be stupid. You're very yeah. I know going... this is the DM. This is the DM quitting party build. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the DM ruining the builds by just being like, uh, everything has blind sight or can see through or true sight, whatever. It's like, oh, you're making yep. the game boring for us. You made it boring for yourselves. All right, <laughs> don't don't put that on me. Revolt against your DM. <laughs> the one thing that I was thinking about is, yeah, you know, as I said, Pact of the Tome doesn't really seem that fitting unless you like want more spell casting for your paladin in which case it's nice something that i didn't really look at before uh, just because i don't look at pact of the tome that much is that ability to gain new ritual spells um and i haven't like looked into which ritual spells you can get but they can learn spells like a wizard or at least ritual spells like a wizard Mm -hmm. um and with a few number of spells you get as a warlock that's actually pretty neat that said, yeah, you need the invocation. Yes, you for do that. need the invocation for that, which is which is fine. And this, I don't think this transfers over to paladins too well, but I just really like that idea of a warlock who goes around looking for more ritual spells to add to their book of shadows. It just sounds like a really neat character that I <laughs> actually have not yeah. seen played before. Where it's like, oh, what are you doing? It's like I just I want more rituals. It's like, oh, that sounds really warlocky. And you're like, yeah, it super is. <laughs> yeah it, it was the default warlock like before hexblade was around um it was just objectively the best because you could do that and it's also that that one was also the one that opens up the you do not need to sleep and cannot be forced to sleep by any means right which right, is which... just such a great thing i'm actually looking that those don't need to be warlock spells it just says you can add other ritual spells to your book of shadows so does that mean all rituals I mean, I assume it's what Book of Ancient Secrets, right? Book of oh yeah yeah that is the yeah the name of yeah it. for any classes spell list they don't even need to be from the same list. Yeah, that's really good. There's a lot of good rituals out there in the the cleric class list, if I remember. When you pick it, it seems to be first level rituals, which is kind of limiting. I, I did look through them. I would oh, okay. probably end up picking find familiar and identify, just because it's both useful and then find familiar so you can, it's kind of like a two for one there where so you get your pact of the tome and then you still could get a familiar by doing this even though yeah. it's not the chain but that's definitely still good useful yeah. um you can also get detect magic which is one that's normally an invocation to get detect magic as it is but now you can just get it as a ritual right definitely worthwhile so. Yeah, I didn't look higher level, though, higher than one. So, yeah, in terms of what your DM's willing to give you, I'm sure there's some really useful stuff out there. Always, like, more rituals, more spells. And it's like stealing information from other classes, which is kind of neat. Feels like you're doing yeah, something Dunking wrong. on other classes is great. Right. Lorebard like, stealing ranger spells, awesome. Oh, my gosh, that was great. You did your um, <laughs> your bard warlock and took the, the steel wind strike. Hell yeah. That was, that was great. I like that a lot. It's just mean. Oh, you're a ranger. It'd be a shame if somebody took your only good fifth level spell. Before you can even get it, you lose it. <laughs> what do you get for rolling a ranger, you dumb dummy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Anything else around paladin warlocks? I think I'm, I'm good here. Nah, I'm good. Yeah, it's pretty dope, man. <laughs> yep. 
All right, before we move on to our monster of the week, uh, let's go ahead and have our promotional minute or so. So if you are not yet, make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Always get that uh, notification that, hey, we have a new episode, and then you can listen to it on day one. And then I can look at the numbers and go, yay, people like us. Uh, also follow us on Twitter. That is at monsters underscore multi and subscribe to our subreddit, which is our monsters and multi-class. Uh, we should be releasing the winner of the whips Nettington contest today at, at whenever this, this episode releases next Thursday. It's always pretty consistent. Go check out who won. And I'm thinking that we're going to do more of these silly build contests in the future. So if you like the idea of it and want to submit some, make sure to, to keep an eye on the, the subreddit at the very least, because that's where most of that goes down. Last thing is if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to monstersandmulticlass.com forward slash support. Uh, there you can purchase dice from our dice affiliate, Met- Metallic Dice Gaming, or games. Man, I always mess that up. Buy merch, <laughs> subscribe to our Patreon, and help us get to the point where we're transcribing episodes. So, let's move on to Kruthix. Kruthix can be summed up in a sentence ripped directly from Mordenkainen's. It says, Imagine a hive of ants the size of horses, but the ants are wearing armor. Then exterminate them. I love Kruthix. Uh, just because they're these nasty creatures, perfect for putting some flavor into a, a cave system, which it seems like uh, campaigns very often find their way to. And they're one of my favorite types of enemies just because they have built-in difficulty scaling and minions. Um, so we have the young Kruthik, adult, and the Hive Lord, which we're going to go over all of these. Um, but let's go ahead and start from the bottom, which is with the young Kruthiks, which are, are nice and simple little guys. Yeah, so these are challenge rating 1-8. They're small monstrosities. Nine hit points. I mean, these are basically cannon fodder. Their highest stat is 13 strength. I'm sorry, 16 dex and 13 strength and con. All the mental stats are pretty low. Um, all Kruthics share the same passive traits. These are Keen Smell, Pack Tactics, and Tunneler. Keen Smell gives them advantage on perception checks that rely on smell. Pack Tactics, where if they, are, if they have an ally within five feet, they have an advantage on attack rolls against a creature. And then Tunneler... They can burrow through solid rock at half its burrowing speed, and it leaves a tunnel in its wake. Yeah, the young Kruthik's burrowing speed is ten feet. Yeah, and what I like about the uh, the tunneler uh, part is that it does change the size of the tunnel based on the Kruthik, or the young's like two and a half, the adult's five foot diameter, and then the Hive Lord is like a, a ten foot diameter. It gives a, a very obvious view of what the size is, uh, and and more importantly determines whether or not the the characters can just get through it easily or if they're going to have a bit of a hard time two and a half foot might not be possible at all unless they're like crawling on their their stomach that's, yeah, that that's, small creature would have to squeeze is yeah. how i would play that yeah that's that's some splunking stuff right there i don't i don't like yeah. that at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right let me exhale all my breath to squeeze through this next part i hope it doesn't go on too long that sort of stuff Oh, I while I chase it. down this horrifying monster of teeth and claws. <laughs> oh, it's so yeah. terrifying. Yeah. But that could be good. I mean, if your group isn't as actually claustrophobic as I am, uh, that could be a cool <laughs> part of, of a, a chase for Kruthix or just going through the, the tunnels as a whole. 
It's like, hey, here's the only path forward is through this tiny little thing. And now you got to get through it. Yeah, this is stressing me out. I, I... <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't even do that to you guys. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know. I yeah. couldn't imagine it. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Just look at that face. Just look at his face and think just like crawling, crawling, you turn and that's right there. <laughs> this horrifying ant face just ready to bite yours off. Yeah. And, and it's right there in your face when you're in a tunnel that's so tight that there's not enough room for you to fully inhale a breath. Yeah. So. Because your lungs are compressed. Yeah. All right. I'm you can't scream as hard. That's a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So that's so. that's horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone else who just being uncomfortable who's also claustrophobic. I don't even consider myself claustrophobic. That's just, I think, a rational fear of being yeah, caught that's in fair. space that tight. That's totally fair. Yeah, I would not classify myself as actually claustrophobic. That's just bad. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, uh, the young Kruthik has one attack. It's plus five to hit. Reach of five feet. as 1d4 plus three piercing damage. Yeah, so these things are not going to be, you know, difficult in a single one-on-one fight obviously um but the pack tactics does actually add something even for these young crew when you're when you're looking at a lower level party um a party of like level threes against seven or eight of these young crew i'm not saying that they're gonna die it's not gonna be a deadly encounter but it is gonna be at least worthwhile uh and probably burn through some resources especially health Definitely, yeah. Overwhelmed with action economy and all of that. And I think that's really how these things need to be played. I guess mm-hmm. we can circle back to how to use them once we get through all three here, though. But Yeah, so the young Kruthix, after about six months, grow up to adult Kruthix. These are medium monstrosities. Challenge rating 2, 39 hit points, 18 AC, um, speed of 40, burrow speed of 20 feet, and climb of 40. Same passives of Keen Smell, Pack Tactics, and Tunneler. These ones have multi-attack. They bank out of two stab attacks or two spike attacks. The stabs are basically the same, plus five to hit. These do 1d6 plus three piercing damage. Spike attack is actually a ranged attack. They project spikes off of their body, kind of similar to the manticores from last episode. Yeah. And it's a 20-foot range or out to 60 with disadvantage, plus five to hit again, and 1d4 plus three piercing. So they either do two stabs or two spikes. Though if I was DM, I'd probably let them do one of each, but... Yeah, that one's always weird. It's like, why why even limit it? Just let him yeah. spike and then run over and do a stab. It it sounds cooler, and it's in no way broken. Right. And then finally, you have the Kruthik Hive Lord. There's, as you, you know, these are hive creatures. They live in swarms, and this is the one that's in charge. It's the Queen Bee, the Queen Anne, whatever, the Kruthik Hive Lord. It's not a difficult concept. Five. <laughs> what what happened to not isolating our <laughs> listeners, Kevin? What if somebody's sitting here and they're like, "What? What's a hive?" And they don't know. You just made them feel really stupid. Explain what a hive is. <laughs> you can't. I don't, that's you hard can't. To can you? Yeah. Because you're a big dumb idiot, Kevin. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's a eusocial colony of like-minded and genetically similar creatures, usually insects. That all go. follow a similar goal. Mm. Yes, and the Hive Lord is in charge of that. One thing to note, these do not have... They're not a hive mind. I know that's that's kind of real common in D&D where you find things where they're hives in like a big colony like this. And they said, oh, well, and they're a hive mind. They're all psychically linked to one another. These are not. Nope. It's just more of a traditional 
kind of hierarchy. So the Hive of Lord is Challenger. You need five with 102 hit points, AC of 20, same speed, same passives. Uh, Better stats all around, except for Dex. Dex is the same. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's 19 strength and 17 con, 16 death. 10 intelligence, like, I mean, so they are decently... All, all of these are decently intelligent. I think even the young one has an int of four. Yeah, the young one's The dolls have an int of seven. Yeah. Which... They do speak a language of Kruthik, so you're not really going to communicate with them, but, like, they are sentient. You like, could officially, if you, like, have any one of the spells that lets you speak telepathically with something that understands a language, it opens it up for that. Despite the horrors here, you absolutely can negotiate with Kruthiks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're art aligned, actually. Interesting. Yeah, you don't see that too much. No. True run aligned. All right. Uh, the Hive Lord has multi attack, uh, two stabs or two spikes, plus seven to hit for these, or plus six for the range, 1d10 for the stab, 1d6 for the spike. Basic stuff. And then they do have an acid spray that recharges on a five or a six. It sprays a 15 foot cone from it. Each creature must make a DC 14 deck save or take 40 10 acid damage on a failed, half as much on a success. Which is pretty substantial damage at challenge rating five. Mm-hmm. So my, I was just say my my only issue with this is I feel like it caps out really early, and I see so much potential in this type of monster that is I want to say wasted to some extent by not explicitly stating things in the stat block, but it is so ripe for just adding on different abilities and tactics that. I almost feel like there was a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, and not adding stuff like a grapple on a stab attack with the Kruthic Hive Lord, you know, or, or just making it overall a, you know, higher challenge rating, because that's kind of what I think about when I think of a Hive Lord. Challenge rating five is like, oh, I ran into this beast along the way, whereas this I'd expect a party to be going through a cave system and get to, like, the final thing, and by itself... It's not too terribly powerful. I think uh, I I don't want to guess the motivations of the people who wrote these books because I have no idea. But you do open yourself up to further expansion when you're like, all right, the Kruthic Hive Lord is now challenge rating 15 and has right. all this crap. Now you can't just have adult Kruthics. You have to have, you know, the Kruthic Vanguard and the Kruthic Myrmidon. And it's just like... <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm saying with that. It's just sometimes you want to keep it a little simple and that makes sense. And I think that's actually perfectly accomplished with these three uh, stat blocks. Yeah, I I like that they are kept lower because they're swarm creatures. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. They they, they feel very much like Zerg from StarCraft to me. And I don't know if Kruthix are an earlier edition, so the Zerg might be inspired off this or vice versa. But even the art looks like a typical StarCraft Zerg. For anyone who's familiar with that stuff. So these are the type where no, any individual one is not dangerous. But I, I would send, even though they camp out of challenge rating five, this is the type of thing I would almost want to send like a level 10 party in to clear out the hive of Kruthix. And they are just faced with overwhelming numbers. Every single fight is like 20 Kruthix, young Kruthix, right? stuff like that. And those are fights you don't see much in D&D. Yes, they're pain in the ass to run, but if you're building an entire kind of dungeon, so to speak, of clearing out the hive around it, you know, prepare for it, group them up, pre-roll things, use average damage, stuff like that to really expedite it. And then you could really let some 
spells and abilities that maybe don't get to see a whole lot of use really shine through because you're not here's one really tough guy and some couple tough minions here's a bunch of really weak crap who will absolutely overwhelm you if you don't get it taken care of quickly definitely yeah i i I think it almost goes without saying but we'll say it because that's what we're here for this is not a single enemy fight there should never be a time where you have a single Kruthic, unless it's because your party has destroyed every other Kruthic that you've thrown at them in this fight. That said, if I were to throw a level 10 party at a Hive Lord, I would still like triple the HP because it's 102 and a level 10 party could easily focus the, the big guy and just take that out really quickly. But something that I would point out is once again that intelligence of of 10 where it is going to use tactics that is completely reasonable for the kruthic hive lord to sit in the back and take all of the spike attacks it can uh while there's just like a wave and wave of enemies in front of it that the party has to get through in order to to actually fight the hive lord which i guess to some extent goes against my recommendation of increasing its hit points but still level 10 that's probably gonna be pretty easy for them to to wipe out the cannon fodder yeah well again that just goes back to adding a lot (laughs) right right yeah another thing is the this is one of the this could be an interesting fight in the sense that the number of kruthix could be n where n is until the party dies or they accomplish a goal right because you can't the way to get these things to leave is to either kill enough of them or kill the hive lord and then they're just going to be like you know whatever we'll move on so you could just say you know they don't stop coming how many how many adult kruthigs are there uh, let's start with a million and then see how far you get into the dungeon. it doesn't matter <laughs> you know, that as long as you make that clear to the players that this is not a single fight you know it's like oh this is not reinforcements this is now like a feature of the terrain. Right. Please go find the Hive Lord. I'm sick of rolling initiatives. <laughs> yeah, or even keeping the entire dungeon to some extent in initiative, which I think would be kind of hard hmm. for map-based play. But with what we did recently, we're going through a dungeon that was all on like a virtual tabletop and I could keep revealing more areas. That would be somewhat interesting to just have it just be straight combat for just a very long time where it's like, okay, yeah, you've officially killed everything around, but things might be coming out at any second now. So gear up. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that constant feeling of being overwhelmed where it's just every, yeah. initial count 10 or 20 or, or whatever more of these just pour out of the ceiling and burrow in and stuff like that. And yeah, your goal as the party is to keep moving dispatch ones immediately in your way, which you could probably do pretty quickly and in around. As you try and yet basically just slaughter your way through here. Yeah, that sounds really neat, actually. I I like the idea of that. Um, And this you you mentioned earlier the idea of grouping up some of these. And I just want to state again how important that is going to be to make classes, martial classes, feel worthwhile. Uh, Because if they are higher level and they're taking one swing and only killing one young Kruthik, that can be a bit of a problem. And... It just kind of makes things weird compared to if you like, you know, make it so that they make like one swing of the blade and they're literally cutting down like two or three of these crew at once. That becomes cool and feels a lot better and makes them feel like they're, you know, doing something. 
once again, it doesn't matter how many they kill in one fight because they're going to keep coming. There's no limit here, but it's just a matter of when you treat it as a unit of Kruthix. You know, there's there's six in this little space here, uh, and when you did 20 damage in a turn, you took out two of them. Great. That's that's fun and feels a lot better. Right. Kind of treat them like a hybrid between a swarm and the individual. Right. Right. Enemies that they are. Yeah. And then this is going to set up cool moments where someone's getting absolutely swarmed and being overwhelmed and you're yelling at the wizard to drop the fireball. I know I'm going to get hit, but this is better than what I'm currently dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, blow for sure. Them away and then, yeah. Yeah, because it's one of the, I mean, a fireball is is going to kill them. And I think the the usual way to deal with dexterity saving throws on a swarm, I don't remember if this is raw or not. I don't know if swarms are even raw. To be honest, they um, are, but they're just they're, they're their own creatures. The sw- right. uh, the swarm centipedes is like it's a stat block in the monster right. manual. Well, yeah, there's a supplement that somebody else wrote that's like how to turn a bunch of things into a swarm of things. I should dig that back up. I'll post that yeah, if I can because that was really well written. Uh, we got yeah, a lot or of doing hordes, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was making things hordes. Where if you're caught in the middle, the horde just kind of has. You do a save, basically, and how you do depends how much of the horde beats up on you, stuff like that. Yeah, so, and and I think the main thing that I was going to bring up was that they had disadvantage on dexterity saving throws, uh, which just seems fitting when you're talking about throwing a fireball into a patch of of bugs. I mean, that's just makes sense. Right. Yeah, this is one where I'd almost kind of go that route where the, like the young and the adult Kruthix as you're fighting and you're running, running your way through their hive and they're just pouring out of the walls and you're just trying to get through them. Do the thing where the, they are minions with one health. A hit kills them. Yeah. Nothing to feel worse than you're doing this. And then it's a young Kruthix, which has nine hit points. It's like, you'll probably kill it, but then you roll a one on damage. Right. You're like, Oh, you did five. Sorry. Not enough. Yeah keep the damage difference there to differentiate between the young and the adult. But then maybe you kind of get through and your players get crafty and they collapse. Let's say they collapse a bunch of tunnels onto the Kruthix so they die. Now I was saying they could just burrow through, but like they kind of collapse the hive with them and it caves in and right. kills a bunch of them. Gravity still affects them. They're not resistant to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the kind of the horde coming out of the woodwork is done. And now you do start ramping up to a little bit of tougher fights. Now you actually give them their health. It's just another adult Kruthix. But it now actually has its 39 hit points and stuff like that. I love the idea of that. The party like running and somebody casts like Thunder Wave. And just a huge boom goes out. You see Kruthix just getting flown back. And the tunnels starts to collapse, crushing down hundreds of them. You just hear like the screams of the Kruthix. And there's silence for just a moment. As you start to see them just tunneling through. The ones that survived <laughs> just make their way. And now you've got, again, a more structured, smaller fight of some adult Kruthix that survived. And some young ones that are still around and made their way through the cracks. Mm-hmm. That's spooky. Yeah. I'll just say that I I, I ran uh, a Kruthic dungeon before for uh, some some people at work, actually. And uh, they were all super low level and overall just bad at D&D. So I had to, like, really pull punches. Uh, But I just saw these things can be really powerful. But I definitely did not think about that that concept of just them being constantly coming. Um, I like that. To talk on their lore a little bit, there's not a whole lot here. They are... 
specifically attracted to sources of heat and stuff so like dwarven forges and pools of molten lava. So I imagine it's very common where you're getting kind of like an SOS of sorts sent out from a dwarven city as a hive of Kruthix has tunneled into them. And now they're in a lot of trouble. They're being swarmed by these things and they need people to come in and help clear them out and send them away. So just a lot of easy kind of hooks there of why they're around. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be one that you like make some huge moral issue with. The only thing that I could think of is if a mine was being opened and then they found out they were making a mine right next to a Kruthic hive and you had like a druid in the party who was like, hey, they were here first. Maybe we should just move the mine. But like any other party is like, these are giant bugs. Giant bugs need to die. How do you move a mine? <laughs> I'm saying that you just don't make it. You say, oh, that sucks. Sorry. Shouldn't have, should have checked for Kruthic hives first. Okay, I'll give you that. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> they, the, the mine's there for a reason. Right, The right. reason is there's an immovable source of ore. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just move the iron ore somewhere else? Oh, uh, that's what we were right. doing with the picks. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there could be an argument of you know, leave the Kruthis alone as long as they're not like trying to like swarm a village or something. But they're going they, to. They are unaligned. It's, I mean, they eat meat and stuff, but so do all the humanoids in D and D eat meat. You know, it's that would be a, that'd be a hard to play around character is like the hardest core vegan ever, <laughs> where your alignment is based off you eating meat. So you know. You are basically lawful to chaotic evil if you've ever consumed animal flesh. Gelato's oh, not vegan. Oh, man, no. Yeah, you can't be in the party, bud. Sorry. <laughs> Chicken parm isn't vegan? <laughs> it's. It doesn't really go into detail of like what they eat or anything, so it's not saying like they prefer intelligent humanoids or no, it know, like says, mind flayers or anything like that. It's just... There's at least something exist, in there they eat. where it says that they... Uh, they eat rotting flesh. That's just like their normal thing to eat, but they prefer eating fresh. And that's about it. Because um, yeah. it used a word that I didn't know. I will find it. <laughs> oh, yeah. They feed on <laughs> on carrion. Yeah, carrion, yeah. which is just, as I said, decaying flesh of dead animals. No, I didn't know that word, mm-hmm. so feel free to bully me as usual, guys. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, but it does say they prefer live prey. So I would definitely say that if if a if there were people around, they are going to make their way over to them. Yeah, that's fair. So yeah, sorry that you all set up a mining town and you know blasted out this mine and really put a lot of effort into getting this ore out. But uh, gotta let the Kruthix just be themselves. <laughs> Who are we to step on that? And then one last thing with the lore, which is definitely going to be important for building encounters, is their shared layers. They'll abide the presence of constructs, elementals, oozes, and undead. Basically things they can't eat. They're happy to have them around. It kind of sounds like they'll build a little symbiotic relationship. Yeah, that sounds with them. interesting. I, I don't know how that's really done since they don't talk to them. So my idea is that it's their... I think treating them with like uh, big bugs is a great way to do it. Uh, so almost imagine like they built their little ant colony in conjunction to a sunken temple or some other kind of dungeon. And the dungeon is not, they just, they're only slightly connected to the dungeon. 
So the dungeon's allowed to exist as it is, full of its oozes and construct. And adjacent to that is their little nest. Right. And every once in a while, these oozes and such might find their way in and they don't care. They're not going to pay them any mind. Yeah. And their strategy would be, we're going to dig a tunnel away. So the ooze either gets lost or, or, you know, loops back to where it's supposed to be going. They just, they can keep these things out. They're not really smart enough to invade the lair. That's actually a neat thought is the idea of the, the Kruthix. Maybe this is a level of intelligence higher than than seven, um, but I can see the Hive Lord at least kind of directing this of like, yeah, you know, make it so that <clears throat> they get lost within the tunnels that they have to just come in and close off the way once they, they get in, uh, leading any of these creatures in. And then now it, it's a forced symbiotic relationship where they, they need uh, the Kruthix in order to bring in more prey for these oozes and construct well constructs don't need to eat too much but uh whatever else right or just building a layer in the way where these oozes and constructs and whatever like where they kind of naturally hang out is at the entrance is just sort of like a natural guardian to the entrance to the layer against intruders yeah definitely like that one thing that i wanted to bring up is the environment uh so there's going to be a lot of cave fighting and tunnel fighting that's pretty obvious um and there's some interesting things you can do with the burrow speed that I feel like shouldn't be ignored. It really shouldn't because burrowing is not that common on creatures. Uh, but when you have it, you just have to put yourself into the place of a creature that can now move through rock rather quickly. Like it's just a little bit difficult to move through, but it's not hard. Uh, they're very often going to be going down in the middle of combat to get closer and, you know, close the distance without uh, being exposed. Or maybe they they grapple a character and now they can just dig into the ground and take them with him. Uh, there's no reason that a, a creature can't grapple. That's right. Like, I'm not missing anything there. Right. Right. So very often I could see them just, you know, there's four pieces of meat here. I'm going to grab my favorite one and just begin burrowing into the ground. And now you get this setup where the PCs have to chase after their friend uh, who's been pulled away uh, or the person who's uh, grappled needs to break it and get out of it. And even when they do, they're still in a tunnel. How would you rule the whole being in a tunnel ordeal? As we, we talked about the two and a half foot wide one, which would just be basically impossible to get through. Um, but a five foot diameter tunnel, you could crouch, you can walk through that. I mean, it depends on your size. Right. That's fair. If you're under five foot, then it's pretty obvious you can do whatever you want. Right. And then in terms of like attacking, it depends what you have. If you have a spear, sure, you can attack fine. If you have a dagger, maybe it disadvantages because you're not going to have like full range of movement. If you have anything else like a long sword or a great sword or a maul, it's just, no, you cannot attack in here. That was kind of my thought too. Is like weapons that aren't piercing would probably be a disadvantage. And that was like my initial thought because yeah. that's like a, of a simple way of doing it. Because a rapier, same deal, is just like you're just stabbing out. You don't need to like swing with that. But anything you need to swing with is a little tough. There's rules for this somewhere. It's not in, I don't think it's in one of the books. I think it's in one of the campaigns or something i don't know it's like in this environment if the player has x y or z and it's exactly what we said i just don't remember where it is that's okay i, I think it might be out of the abyss i would expect it to be it might be yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's that's a time for just dm discretion 
it just could be a cool way to make the tunnels feel like you're fighting in tunnels. Right. Let your fighter get that awesome fighting style finally. The tunnel fighter one? No. Tunnel Tunnel fighter. Don't let them do that. Um, It's also, again, an opportunity to do like what we did with uh, the Manticore of throwing on some, making it into an action-oriented monster. More or less just changing this thing up. It's got tons and tons of abilities that you can reflavor how you want. Uh, Maybe the spike has acid damage attached to it. Great. Do that. It has an ability where it does, like I said, it, it grapples and can burrow and disengages for free. Yeah, there's tons and tons of options there if you want to make it into a more interesting fight uh, and not just have it be overwhelming numbers. Yeah. Though you're missing out if you don't do the overwhelming numbers, in right. my opinion. Right, right, right. You should still do them. That was a do this and the overwhelming numbers thing. <laughs> you got to get that Star Troopers vibe going, man. Just endless horror. Ooh, it'd be good to have like a bunch of NPCs with them for some reason. There was a cave-in. Especially ones they built bonds and friendships. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a cave-in or something, and they have to go in and, and rescue these people and then get them out. Uh, and then you just have, like, the Kruthics are just picking these NPCs off rapidly. After, of course, building up emotional bonds with them. Of course. Which, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, like, if you tell your players, like, hey, these uh, these people give you money if they survive. It's like, ooh, that's an emotional bond I can get down with. Otherwise, <laughs> if you try dropping like a, like, oh, this is a, a mother and she's got five children at home, PCs are going to be like, eh, you know. That means she probably has less gold for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Farm will be fine. She's got five kids. Because <laughs> it depends on how messed up in the head your players are. <laughs> All right, just, you can't cheat the emotional bonds it's the same with like any story or anything it's you can't just say oh this person is very important and sweet and you should feel empathetic for them because they have kids and now oh no something bad happened and so you should feel bad it's like you can't like cheat that you have to they have to be around for a while to build it up right right right. which is as in kind of the issue of this is if if it is like a rescue mission there's not going to be enough time generally to to right. build those important bonds. It's totally possible. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it for the, the purpose of be cautious about that. Um, if you set it up so that when they like, there are periods of rest and respite for the players to uh, talk with these NPCs and actually build a connection to them, then you can totally do that. Uh, it just might be a little bit tough. And as usual, you never know who PCs are going to gravitate towards. Sometimes they right. just don't really jive with the personality and that's it. Yeah. Um, I know this is completely off topic, but that's something Out of the Abyss did really well. Uh, a lot of people complain about how you start off the game uh, in, in jail and there's like 12 NPCs with you. Maybe not 12, but it's a really high number like that. And in theory, all of them can accompany the party throughout it. And it can be kind of tough to handle, but I, th- I think uh, there's definitely... A good reason it's so many is because it does allow the players to sort of show which ones they are connected to. And the DM knows to keep those ones around because it's like those are the ones they're drawn to. Right, Those ones are going to get more of a story built and kept around and the other ones are going to die or just kind of go off on their own. 
or whatever. So it's just a big pool to sort of whittle it down. Yeah, definitely. And I, I loved that aspect of it. I mean, if anything happened to our little mushroom friend, I would have gone berserk. I might have hurt you, Kevin. Yeah. Blamed you specifically. That was, that was actually a really well done uh, aspect of that campaign. Yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've been, read a lot about how to make players care about npcs and you know it just it's a, a big concept in D. I don't think i've once run across somebody say just throw a bunch of npcs at them and the ones that they like develop those but that makes perfect right. sense that's it on Crothix. we're done Crothix. i say I don't, I don't have anything else they're they're fun though i i really do like these they apparently had three elore that was totally different but nope they're just bugs <laughs> I don't know what more you need. Just bugs is fine for me. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just bugs. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our final segment. Ask Monsters of Multiclass. Yes. So go ahead, listener. Ask us. What do you want us to talk about? Oh, right. <laughs> this is pre-recorded. We can't hear you. What we did hear, though, is a question from Ivor Hobby on Twitter asked, how would you go about making a support character? I want to be the best in helping my friends, which is a extremely noble thing of you, Ivor Hobby. That's good. Good for you, man. I want to be the worst at helping my friends and doing single target damage. <laughs> That's why I like paladins who I guess accidentally help their party. If you're nearby, I guess. Anyways, making a support character in D and D. How do you do this? What do you focus on? Just be a live cleric, man. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there is definitely a lot of options uh the kind of classic what p- when people think rpgs is oh you go the healer because that's obviously supporting it D that's tough I-, I really think life cleric's probably the only viable way to do that otherwise the amount of healing that you're able to do absolutely cannot keep up with the damage even life cleric we're bringing that up because our current campaign we have a life cleric and we've been kind of surprised about how incredibly useful she's been with the amount of healing she puts out but to be honest the damage is still being outdone it's just if you're not a life cleric and you're trying to heal in the middle of combat you're maybe buying three quarters of a round right so you heal them for 10 damage and the enemy's going to do 12 or 13 on their next turn. Well, if a life cleric, it's more like you're buying one to two rounds. It bumps it up enough where it's you will actually survive a couple more rounds of hits. Right. And it also makes healing before somebody's down a little bit more worthwhile, just in the sense that you know, like if the life cleric's at half health or something and somebody else is at a quarter, then she can throw out a healing word and she gets health herself plus Whoever gets, you know, the healing word on them gets a significant amount of healing where for like a first level spell, we're talking 12, 13 or so, and that can obviously be scaled up. So yeah, life cleric is definitely the easy answer if we want to talk about healing. But otherwise, I think that if you try to make a support character, healing should be the last thing you think about. I agree. Yeah, it's more, it should be more to get people up from being unconscious so they don't actually die. Right. <laughs> and maybe healing up outside of combat. Though a lot of times just taking a short rest is really more efficient if you can manage it. Uh, so then I guess there's an additional, another kind of two aspects. So do you go to buff your party or hinder the enemy? 
I would say both is support. And I think you kind of need to do both. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, there's you can't have one without the other to some extent. Um, and you're not going to you're not going to choose incorrectly is what I would say is if you're casting bless, that is a support spell. You're helping your party hit more and succeed on more saving throws. If you cast Bane, uh, as long as they fail their charisma save, which they probably will, the enemy is going to hit less and they're going to fail more of their saving throws. Both are support. Right. Both are great options. Though, actually, I think Bless is generally considered to be a lot better there. It is. Just because it's guaranteed. Totally. To yeah, it just happens. And, happen. and that's obviously yeah. good. And... You expect a PC to live throughout the entire fight. You don't expect an enemy to live throughout the entire fight. Whoever you right. bane, maybe it's like, oh, well, they're less important because they, they failed their saving throw and the other ones didn't. That's kind of getting into semantics. I, I would definitely say that Bless is going to be much better every time. I'll just say every time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and then it just comes down to... It's usually support characters are going to be spellcasters. Right. And it just comes down to picking spells that are good with that. Bards are probably one of the best because they are they get a lot of good spells for support for battlefield control and buffing. And then uh, level 6 if you're lower board or level 10. For the rest, you get magical secrets. So you can pick stuff from other ones as well. But like bards get the spell hypnotic pattern, which is amazing battlefield control. Was it 30 foot cube, I think? Uh, one save at the beginning. Anybody who fails the save is incapacitated and has no speed or anything like that. And they have to either take damage or somebody else needs to take an action to shake them awake. So it's. They're not making a save every round. It could hit a large number, and it's always something really good to open combat with because you can knock out a large number of enemies where you then go deal with the rest. So if they, you count that as support, I would consider that one of the best. I think you would be, it would be very wrong to not consider it support. I mean, all of these yeah. things that are locking down enemies or hindering them in some way, that's what support is. You're not dealing the direct damage, uh, but you're still right. doing something that is incredibly useful. Um, I'll even say... Uh, I was about to call you Musty, but Will, your character Musty, <laughs> uh, used heat metal on a fighter who was wearing plate in our fight last week and it was extremely useful because you were using up just your bonus action and giving this enemy disadvantage on every single one of his attacks it was doing 2d12 on those attacks plus four and it had three attacks per round so disadvantage wasn't a small thing and sure you were getting some damage out of it because heat metal does damage but i would say you were giving up your concentration for a support thing and you were absolutely 100% supporting the party you were making sure the healer Ilenia or life cleric didn't just get murdered immediately and then making sure embers didn't get murdered immediately Kevin's character it was it's all across the board I mean druid is another one that I think you're going to get a lot of utility out of trying to play that more support role mm -hmm. and I, I think the the distinction that's important here is what we are just talking about is the mentality you should be going into this with you will never be a pure healer in the sense that you will only heal. That's not a good way to play the game. And you'll never be a pure support in some of the... There's like there's a video gamey sense of support that defines it as, I sit in the back, I only target my allies to make them better. Right. 
that's not really going to translate well to D&D. You've got a couple options. Haste is a great example of that. But you cast that once and you stick on concentration, you know? There's no way to play every single round I do a supportive action to my party. So you do have to mix it in with, you know, like what we said, Heat Metal is a great example of an offensive spell that often does more for support than damage. Right. Uh, Vicious Mockery. So that's one where, going back to Bards, I think Bards is the only one that gets that to Cantrip. Mm-hmm. It's not much damage as a D4. I mean, it scales as Cantrips too. But then the enemy has a disadvantage on his next attack. Yeah. And so that's the type of thing where maybe you do haste. You haste your party or you have hypnotic pattern up, which is concentration, limiting what spells you're going to cast. And then you're using your action to throw out a vicious mockery to be giving disadvantages. And then your bonus action to give out bardic inspiration to your parties to boost them up. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, Bard is, I mean, that's it's it's a support class through and through. You can have some damage dealing ones, but a, a lore Bard, um, the new bard that i can't remember the the subclass for the orator one. Oh, and uh the new the theros book. i can't remember the name of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and, and yeah the mythic guy to theros yes. no that's not a guy it's <laughs> mythic odyssey of theros college of eloquence as well is what that's i was looking it. for um heavily favors support yeah why would anybody ever ask us questions? <laughs> <laughs> Can't even remember the name of books. Hey, in our defense, they just came out. It's not like it was like... In our... It, counter to that, we just did an episode. <laughs> <laughs> Mythic Odyssey to Wildmount, right? Right. Mythic Odyssey is a wildmount. The Mythic Odyssey's guide to the wild mounts of monsters. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> We're done. Right, we're, 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 this this oh. joke has ran into the ground. We're done. All right. um, <laughs> more support stuff. Passive abilities. Paladins are good with that because paladins get auras. Like at 6th level, anything within 10 feet will get the paladin's charisma modifier to any saving throw they make. Yeah, and to put on That's that, awesome. I think usually charisma becomes a secondary stat on paladins because they're more focused on doing the damage but if you are going in with that mentality of like i want to support my friends the best that i can bump charisma up to 20 because plus five to all saving throws and telling your buds to stay right on your butt is definitely how you uh you support and (laughs) you know how you can do that really easily and not have a bad character Uh, go into a paladin (laughs) warlock i don't know if you've heard about them uh but oh my god they are such a good combination for this uh, because your paladin can now stay back, give those auras at level six, the rest they go into warlock, and now they're shooting eldritch blasts and still destroying. You're doing damage. It's not pure support, but you can be where you need on the battlefield and offer the support and still fit whatever role you need to fit. Yeah, but it, for true pure support, I think paladin bard. Uh, I can see that. Best. I can see that for sure. Yep. Yeah. And I think it would beat it out in that sense. What if you want Celestial And you're still going to be able to do decent damage, too. Yeah. <laughs> because you're you're getting more spell slots from being a bard, which you could also use for smite. That'd be the hardest thing, is trying to play a support paladin, where you're just like, ooh, <laughs> I, I could smite right here. You just have to have the, uh, the discipline to only crit on smites. Or, or sorry, only smite on well, crits. Yeah. I said it the other way around. Only smite on crits. <laughs> Uh, Paladin's lay on hands pool is really nice for support as well, especially if we're getting people up. You know, you're five levels in the Paladin, you have 25 points to lay on hands. 
in theory, you could bring somebody back from being unconscious and on the brink of death 25 times <laughs> a day. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty great. And it's going to, is, as yeah. you mentioned earlier, where if you try and focus on healing, you're only going to buy your player three quarters of a round. It's the same if you give them one HP. Right. Because they stand there, they have a chance to get up and remove themselves and do whatever it is they need to do. And you're resetting death saves. Right. One spell that I know is a higher level one, but is, I think, called Holy Weapon. Uh, and that's the one where you just, like, make somebody else's weapon do radiant damage. I think it's a cleric-only spell and a paladin. Paladins get it, too, but fifth-level paladins, pretty high up there. But you just make somebody's weapon attack do an extra 2d8 radiant damage, and it makes the weapon magic as well. And you can dismiss it as a bonus action, and when you do so, creatures within 30 feet have to make a constitution save or they take an additional 48 radiant damage and are blinded for a minute. I love that spell. It's super good. The thing that kind of sucks about it is that I think the bonus action radiant damage only happens if you specifically take your bonus action to do it. It's not like if your concentration drops that you just like get that for free. That would be extra nice. Yeah. But it's still just a, a really good spell and, and definitely worth holding your concentration for as a cleric. and Or a lore bard with magical secrets, I could definitely see taking this as a spell. Yeah, this spell this spell actually does get slept on a lot because it's, uh, it's in Xanthers, so it's a little bit newer. It's fifth level, so realistically clerics are going to see it way more than paladins right, would. Right, right. And... You know, competing with concentration is just tough. It's also only a bonus action to cast, though. Yeah, which is also something clerics have a bunch of other concentrations that are bonus actions. Like, damn, these are really good. Yeah, it's the one time that you're like, all right, round one, I want to get my spiritual weapon up, and I want to cast holy weapon, because spiritual weapon, oh, both both bonus oh. actions. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's definitely tough. It's can't cast two spells <laughs> on a turn anyways, but, you, you know. Then you can't make your attack with it. So I guess it's better to holy weapon first. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're both good. So I, I could easily see taking that as a bard. Man, bards would be a really good support character, wouldn't they? <laughs> it's almost like the class was designed around that. Yeah, almost. Right? Almost. Yeah, crazy. Your only issue is you're going to yeah. have too much to do with your bonus action. Uh, I wonder if they have like a core mechanic, some kind of die they could give other players. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think bards have too much to do with bonus action. We're running into that right now with my rogue bard because rogues have a lot to do yes. with bonus action. And so that's what's competing right. with my current character. That's fair. Just a straight bard. Usually not much. Another way to look at support is out of combat support where you have a bunch of proficiencies and expertise and a bunch of skills, which bards get. <laughs> uh, or also rogues in this sense. Rogues are also good out of combat support. Or knowledge domain clerics. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The idea kind of being, in a sense, you could almost tie it back into combat because these out-of-combat utility abilities and spells could help you skip encounters altogether. And like, what's that's like the maximum of support. Right. Your party doesn't have to spend a single resource because of your expertise plus 15 and a skill allowed you to just skip an account right. entirely or your particular useful spell or whatever. Or give you an advantage before the fight. Uh, ideas like that of of doing something that is again out of combat to 
I don't know. I can't think of like a scenario. All I can think of right now is like the support character gets everybody to higher ground somehow before the fight starts. So now you've got a All right, how about this? point. How about this? Your support character, you, you're about to go into a room full of evil snowmen. And your support <laughs> character was an HVAC technician and knows how to reverse the climate climate control systems of the dungeon. So now all the ice monsters have disadvantage. Yeah, that seems really good. And all you had to do was be an HVAC technician. Yeah. No, that's exactly the kind of support we're looking for. Um, or maybe you like are having issues with your computer. You like went to some shady websites uh, and you can like talk to that character and they can give you some support on, on how to fix your computer issues. <laughs> maybe an artificer. Level one support, <laughs> Artif- level two support. It's exactly like the real world. <laughs> artificer would be good for that. We'll call it a, a tech support class. Yeah. Artificer. Could also be a decent, yes. Yeah, it probably could, yeah. Not joking. No, no, one hundred percent. Yeah, they're invocation, not invocations. Um, what are they called? A blade. Magic weapons. Artifices. Infusions. It, it starts with an Infusions. I. Infusions. That was it. Yeah. Uh, which they could hand out to the party. They could get they get decent support spells if I remember. Then stuff like spell storing and stuff like that. The alchemists, which. Questionable unusefulness. It, it is uh, the support. I just hear Triant Monk in the back of my head, just just right? yelling yeah. at us. Like, you're not even allowed to talk about it, guys. Don't don't even say it. It's it's really <laughs> it's really bad, and I think it's partially bad because it is trying to do pure support, which is this game isn't great at. But it's even unique to that. It's just not good. But the infusions would be super useful for some some members of your party. I think they also get that that third yeah. level ability that coincides with what you were talking Flash about. Genius. No, 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 that's that's 7th level. Yeah. They can make a a tool, an artisan's tool um, nearby. So, I mean, with a creative player, that could be useful out of combat if you could just make any artisan's tools possibly. I get that one. I don't really like that one. I don't like, I don't I, love I it. Never run into that run into a situation where I was like, "Oh man, I really want to do this thing." But I just don't have the tools I'm proficient in. It's like if you're proficient and can use the tools, generally you just have them on you. Yeah, I think this would be, again, it, it takes somebody really creative. Maybe it even takes a DM who's too lenient. But there's got to be some use for it. Tool proficiencies just don't come up that much, which is, in my opinion, a shame. But I'm not actively doing anything to combat that. It's not like I throw tool proficiency stuff at you guys all the time because I'm like, oh, they're so underutilized. They're kind of tough to just put in. It's not very often that having brewer's tools saves the day. It's because they're like literally the kit of somebody who works for a living. Yeah. Like that's (laughs) what we are playing to pretend we don't do. Right. You go into a village and they're like, we're out of brewer's tools. And you're like, oh, how do you guys like drink water? Because that's usually pretty contaminated. Gotta make most of that into <laughs> ale. What are you even doing? How do you survive? Drunken monk saves the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but definitely going to agree with the uh, infusions. Just being able to make a whole bunch of support items. Give them to the right people. Not focus on yourself. Uh, which can be kind of tough playing D&D to not focus on yourself doing well. But Artificer can do it for sure. On that, though, you need to make sure you are not ignoring yourself because if you're going for support, a lot of probably almost every combat, you're going to have a concentration spell up. 
that you don't want to end and you need to make sure that you're still at least somewhat hard to hit try and boost your cons and ideally give yourself proficiency in con saves or take warcaster get advantage on the concentration checks stuff like that yeah artificer comes in again because you get proficiency in constitution saving throws so yeah definitely agree with that you do have to just focus more on having health, having higher con- constitution. And maybe that's something that you focus on instead of your, I don't know, I was going to say dexterity for like armor class, but not getting hit is a really good way to not make a concentration save. Mm-hmm. And you want to focus on your spellcasting ability because things failing your saving throw is also extremely important at being a support character. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just have all good stats. That's how you be a good support character. <laughs> <laughs> try and go for some maneuverability like take misty step or dip two levels into rogue to get cunning action to disengage as a bonus action stuff like that just again so you could get out of the way yeah yeah i like that have shield the shield spell you know definitely there's so i guess it's not really a straightforward answer because it's like you can't hyper focus on any one strategy because it's just there's gonna be a lot of times it just doesn't work in D such as only healing or only buffing or only hurting the enemies. It's, debuffing, as they change call it. change it a lot. Debuffing, thank you, yes. You don't want to completely focus on yourself and trying to do like good damage and all that, but you can't just ignore yourself because then you're going to get hit and killed and concentration's going to drop, things like that. You're going to want something to do every turn that does not take a resource, such as plunking things with a heavy crossbow, or yeah, if you are barred, it would probably be vicious mockery, but things like that. Yeah. But it can work, and I think that's the important yeah. thing to. Oh to yeah, point out. no, it's it's kind of. I'm finding it's it's how I started playing as I played the support character bards and stuff, and then I got away from that for a while, and I'm like kind of drifting back <laughs> because I find that more interesting. You're addicted to bards, uh, I get, Kevin. I am. I'm addicted. To bards. <laughs> I'm addicted to support. I'm addicted to like the battlefield control and the manipulation and stuff like that. I find I get bored with. The characters where they like they hit really hard, and like I've had a couple of those now. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of fun at first, but I get bored of them. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. All right. Any other closing thoughts, Will? Yeah, just a uh, roll a life cleric, man. Just roll a life cleric. You heard it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin, take it away. Thanks for listening. Next time on Monsters and Multiclass. Join us as we discuss the Barbarian Artificer multiclass and Golems from, I believe, Monster Manual. There might be one from Morden Canons, but that's not too important. And then a question around traps from Penguin Knight. <laughs>